The U.S. state and the arms dealers are basically the same ruling class. And that ruling class has an interest in securing their hegemony, their markets, their natural resources abroad, and that's what causes imperialism. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Alrighty, hi everyone and welcome to the uh, Abolition Means No War panel discussion. Um, we are so excited to have you all here. Um, my name is Nico. I am with um, the Dissenter Chicago crew. Um, I'm so excited to be facilitating and uh, moderating this panel with um, such amazing organizers. Um, I myself am a Black queer um, organizer, radical organizer from Chicago. Um, and that's Ojibwe, Potawatomi, and um, Odawa lands. Um, so I'm so excited to be here. Um, this conversation is being hosted um, as a collaboration between dissenters, um, Haymarket Books, and um, Rampant Magazine. Um, Haymarket Books and Rampant Magazine are great friends. Um, thank you guys for hosting, uh, co-hosting this with us. Um, and we're so excited um, as dissenters um, to have this be a part of um, our larger um, disorientation weekend. Um, so disorientation is a virtual convergence, a three-day virtual convergence in which um, we already today um, and tomorrow and Sunday will be talking about um, anti-militarist topics um, and talking about um, you know, what it means to be against militarism, war and militarism, um, and what it means to build a youth movement against um, war abroad. Um, and so I first want to um, introduce and welcome um, Destiny Harris. Um, Destiny is a Black queer abolitionist organizer um, from the west side of Chicago. Um, she's also a student at Howard University. <laughs> Um, and her work um, is at the intersection of abolition, anti-war, um, and anti-militarism, um, and also um, environmental liberation. So I want to welcome her um, to read her um, amazing poem that was a part of our Demilitarized Art Portfolio and Zine earlier this year. Um, so I'm gonna hand it off to Destiny um, to go ahead and read her poem. Thank you so much for that introduction. Um, can you guys hear me okay? I wanna make sure y'all can hear me before I start. Okay, the title of this piece is The Revolution Will Not Be Sober. The revolution will not be sober. It will be drug-induced. We will be high off liberation. We will light spliffs as we strut towards socialism. We will drink victory vodkas and take abolition acid taps. We will drink rum. We will riot and rejoice and we will scream Rakia Boy's name and rumba in the streets in the spirit of our Afro-Latin ancestors, we will make healing sessions out of our workshops. We will retitle them, hold space for processing through holistic medicine. We will watch Miriam Cabo webinars and smoke Mary Jane. We will study socialism under the sensation of shrooms. We will take acid trips and dive into Angela Davis. We will bring cognac to our discussions on capitalism and invite Dr. 1800 to our workshops on the 400 years of systemic oppression black people have faced in this country. We will call ourselves AA. Abolitionists Anonymous. 
We will not be ashamed. We will reclaim the ideology of addiction to this work, to abolition. We will not be ashamed. We will allow ourselves, we will not allow ourselves to crumble alongside these systems. We will tell people that abolition is about dreaming beyond imagining creating our own perception of the world we want to live in, allowing us to travel beyond the non-ordinary states of anti-capitalism. We will tell people that psychedelics are about dreaming beyond imagining, changing our perception of space and time, allowing us to travel immerse into the non-ordinary states of consciousness. And unlike how white folk commodified the earth, took mother nature's fruit and waged war over its access, we will give back to the earth we will use this fruit of the psilocybin mushroom, this fungus of the larcidic acid dothalamide, these leaves of the cannabis plant to aid in our understanding of why prisons are obsolete. We will use these fruits of Mother Earth to aid in our destruction of the very systems that harm her. We will battle addiction to this work. We will call ourselves AA, Abolitionist Anonymous, because the revolution will not be sober. It will be drug-induced. We will be high off liberation. And we need all addicts on deck. And that's that piece. Amazing. Thank you so much, Destiny, for reading that powerful um, piece. And like I said, that's a part of um, a grander project um, that is um, the Dissenters Demilitarized Art Portfolio and Zine that you guys should definitely check out if you have time. Um, it's on the Dissenters social media, We Are Dissenters. Um, great work went into that. Um, so many amazing artists um, did um, you know, visual art as well as poetry and that type of thing. Um, so please check that out if you do have the chance. Um, <clears throat> but now I would love to end to our panel discussion. Um, and first I just want to um, introduce our amazing panelists. Um, because um, they deserve to have their, um, you know, accomplishments read off. Um, so here we go. Um, so Brian Bean is um, a Chicago-based socialist activist, writer, um, and speaker originally from North Carolina. Um, he's one of the founding editors of Rampant Magazine, um, and his work has been published in Jacobin, Red Flag, International Viewpoint, and New Politics, um, and other uh, publications. Um, he is co-editor of Palestine, A Socialist Introduction, um, and recently co-authored the article, Rebuilding the Anti-Imperialist anti Movement in a New Era. Um, he's also a member of the Tempest Socialist Collective. Um, so help me in welcoming Brian. Um, and then we have Hoda Katebi, um, who is an Ara Iranian um, American writer, abolitionist organizer, um, and creative educator based between Chicago and the Bay. Um, her work has been hailed from the BBC to the New York Times to the pages of Vogue um, and featured and cited in books, journals, and museums around the world. Hoda is the host of uh, Because We've Read, um, a radical digital book club and discussion series mobilizing local communities with 25 plus chapters globally, founding, um, a founding member of the Blue Ten Production, um, an apparel uh, manufacturing workers, a cooperative run by working class women of color, um, setting new international standards in labor and sustainability within fashion supply chains, 
Um, and she's a national lead with Believers Bailout, a bail fund using zakat to um, bail Muslims um, from pretrial and immigration incarceration. Um, and she is an organizing strategist for anti-war movements with the No War Campaign. Um, she's a contributor to the book, I Refuse to Condemn, Resi Resisting Racism in Times of National Security. Um, and her writing has appeared in publications including Newsweek, Washington Post, and Vogue. Um, Hoda is uh, currently a student at Berkeley Law um, and runs on saffron rice and colonizer tears. Um, so please help me in welcoming Hoda to our um, panel. Um, and then finally, I would love to welcome, um, sorry, Nadia Tanous. Um, Nadia is the visiting U.S. fellow at the Al-Shabaka um, Palestinian Policy Network. Um, she is passionate, a passionate community organizer born and raised in the Bay Area um, with a focus on political education, movement relationship building, anti-militarism, and returning land to the people and pe people returning to the land. Nadia um, holds a MSc in refugee and um, forced migration studies from the University of Oxford and a BA in anthropology and global information and social enterprise studies from the use from the University of California Santa Cruz. Um, she serves on the National Executive Board of the Palestinian Youth Movement and is a land back organizer with the Indian Collective. Um, so help me in welcoming all four of these amazing, amazing organizers. Um, it's going to be a great conversation um, tonight um, with all of the experiences that we have in the room. Um, so I just want to jump into our first question, our first topic of um, kind of discussion. Um, and I wanna um, direct this question to um, Destiny and Nadia, if you would. Um, so why is um, a movement against imperialism important? Um, a new movement against imperialism important? Um, and then what should it look like? Um, and why is it important that the movement embraces an intersectional approach? Um, so how does it, uh, what does our movement look like? Why are we trying to build this movement? Um, and what, how do we kind of, um, center the voices that are most often at the margins. Um, so if we can start with Nadia and then go on to Destiny. Sure, um, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this convo. Um, it's a great question. I think um, one thing that we're always struggling with as people who live in the global north, but who uh, oftentimes are from the global south, um, we toggle with living in the belly of the beast, uh, being part and parcel um, in many ways of, of the violence that goes on um, abroad using um, you know, the, the force and the hegemony of the United States where we live and the fact that we are also brutalized by the same uh, forces uh, that exert power and exert uh, death and destruction elsewhere. So I think, um, you know, what do we do about um, being people who are brutalized by the state and who also live within the belly of the beast. How do we build connections um, to communities abroad and try to build power uh, to hold um, this state that we live in um, accountable? Um, it's a hard, it's a, it's a hard question. I think I appreciate that the title of this panel means abolition means no war because what that means is that it pulls us away from reforming a colonial state. So it means we live in a colonial state, this state is predicated on violence, on occupation, on war, on terror. And so what that means is that 
um, we would not expect such a state to, um, you know, be the, the beacon of democracy in the world or to arbitrate any kind of violence from other nations, right? In fact, uh, it is destined to support it. I think something that is powerful um, about building a new movement against imperialism is making those connections that the centers already talks about, which is there's the war at home and the war abroad, right? And we know that those um, systems of control, those systems of, um, you know, the development of weapons, uh, surveillance, um, like I said, systems of control and infrastructure, um, you know, corporations, governments, um, and uh, to be honest, um, larger projects and, and, and collaborations between the two, um, and we can even say uh, technology firms now, right, as we're moving into this um, 21st century, all of them collaborate, which means that um, there is uh, you know, knowledge that is being reaped and being profited on, is being bolstered off of our own demise. Um, maybe it's us as protesters in the streets. Maybe it's when a SWAT team comes to uh, the neighborhoods where we live or our houses. Um, it might be um, going through um, different forms of, of the immigration process. It might be going through um, um, a variety of, of structures of violence that we have to process, that we have to process through in order to live. We also know that those systems of control are being developed um, and exported um, outside and then vice versa. As a Palestinian, we know that the surveillance mechanisms that Microsoft um, is working on and the trials that they are running in uh, the West Bank, for example, all of that information is going to be utilized in order to bring it back here to the United States and perfected, right? Um, and so I think, uh, in short, uh, the new movement against imperialism, we know that it is inherently intersectional. To deny that is to not have a full scope of what imperialism means and what, it, what the effect is. I think just as an example, you know, there's been a lot of conversation. I know we're going to go into it about targeting um, the big five um, military corporations, right? So we have Elbit, uh, Raytheon, General Dynamics, Boeing, and Lockheed Martin. Did I get those correct? All right. So I think, um, you know, what's important when we talk about Elbit, for example, we know that Elbit has been developing the Panopticon Towers um, that make up the Israeli wall. Um, some will call it the apartheid wall, I'd say the occupation wall. Um, and we know that Elbit was also offered uh, the, the contract um, in order to build those towers and to create the new infrastructure of the wall between the U.S. and Mexico um, and basically create a 2.0 of the towers that we have now had in Palestine for 10 years, right? We also know um, that those uh, systems that Elbit will be creating and, and some in some ways have already established on autumn territory, if we're talking about the surveillance towers, those are also being constructed on native land, right? So they're being used to brutalize migrants who are coming through the, the border apparatus and they're also brutalizing native people whose territory they're on and where they're also being assembled. Um, so there are many, many examples, right? We can also connect Boeing and their creation of um, and and their um, their contributions to the F-35 jets, right? As something that you know, what are F-35 jets for? They're for state-to-state -state combat, 
So what we know, and um, I'm sure other folks will speak to this, but we know that this has a lot to do um, with, with serving U.S. interests in the Middle East, North Africa region, right? But if Boeing is part of uh, constructing these weapons of destruction, right, F-35 jets is the top of a line fighter jet, and Boeing is also um, positioning itself as a radical or not radical, but let's say a progressive force that is funding or behind radical organizations um, or a force that is um, fit to partner with a city like the city of Chicago. Um, these are places where um, the at home and abroad become particularly salient because it's going to be hard to target huge weapons manufacturers and, and stop the, the horrors that they are committing abroad. But if they are at home, it means that in some ways they are accessible. So what is the process of trying to pair together, work together to deconstruct those mechanisms of control and that flow of money, that flow of production? Um, that's it for now. Um, yeah, I think Nadia said a lot of what I was going to say, but uh, to answer the question of why this anti-military, anti-imperial movement needs to be intersectional. I think the answer is simple. I think my liberation is tied to Hoda's liberation, is tied to Brian's liberation, is tied to Nadia's liberation. And none of these issues are isolated. And so what I was going to say is a really good point that Nadia brought up was a lot of times it's hard to make the connections about why wars abroad, right, are affecting us, how it affects us, or to even tune into what's going on in abroad, what's going on abroad is sometimes hard when you're battling wars in your everyday community, right? So it's hard to think about, well, what war, what wars are happening at a mass scale when every day we wake up, there's a war being waged in our communities. So for, like, me, I'm a youth organizer and abolitionist who started getting into organizing through like police divestment campaigns, right? Calls of action to uh, tell the city of Chicago that they are investing way too much money into police and state and not enough money into black youth and resources and the things that actually keep communities safe. But if you're someone like me, who's from like the west side of Chicago, who was born and raised in Austin, and there are no jobs, right? Schools have been closed down, right? One of the largest public school closings in history happened under our mayor, Rahm Emanuel, when I was in sixth grade. Like, if you come from a community that's heavily over-policed, right? A community that is experiencing gun violence at like very scary rate, then you're thinking about those things, right? You're thinking about the things that you have to face on a day-to-day -day basis, right? I have to leave out my house. I have to figure out what I'm going to eat, how I'm going to get to school, how I'm going to get back, how many police officers I'm going to encounter alongside all of that, how many times I might get harassed and all of those type of things, right? We're battling wars in our community on a day-to-day -day basis. And so what I try to think about it, I try to think about it as like, we're battling wars in our community daily and those wars are tied to the wars abroad right these are these are the trickle down effect of all of these systems right this is this is what happens we think about wars abroad and like let's say for example why there isn't affordable housing in your community it's likely that it's going to tie back to the same institutions of capitalism right imperialism nationalism right and so these issues are different but they're able to happen because of the same systems, right? They're happening 
under these same systems of capitalism and imperialism and, imperialism and racism and racial capitalism and all of those things. And also another thing that I like to think about is like war war affects everything, right? It is it affects us in ways that we don't even know. Like, for example, my father was in the military, right? When you think about the way in which the military recruits is often in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods and low income black and brown neighborhoods. So like everything is connected, right? Why why are there only military recruiters in our schools? Why are they here every day, right? That's connected to right imperialism. That's connected to militarism and war. Like when we think about what, when we were protesting, when we we're protesting in the streets, why do the Chicago Police Department come armed like they're ready to combat a war? Why do they come with tear gas? Why do they come with batons? Why do they come with riot gear? Why did this happen? Because of the militarization of the police. So it's like, it's not really the right, who, who is supplying the police departments with these weapons, right? 1095, right? You know, we want to talk about 1055 and all that stuff. So it's just like, all of these issues are connected and it's just like uh, about just, like I said, at the end of the day, thinking about how all of these systems are connected. And that is the reason that it's important that a movement to end war, right? Anti-militarist, anti-imperialist, anti-war movement. It is important that it's intersectional and that black, brown, young, queer, poor people are at the center of it because we're facing wars in our communities on a daily and the connections are striking, right? What's happening, right? Right. Why is the Chicago Police Department aiding in genocide in Palestine? Like, you know, so yeah, uh, long story short, uh, we just have to think about like the issues that we see on a day-to-day -day basis. They are often not isolated from the same ways that wars are being waged in our communities by the U.S. is the same way that the U.S. is in other places, waging wars and putting other communities against each other and completely the same way our communities don't have any resources or adequate resources that they should have is the same thing that's happening is the same way the U.S. is extracting from other places. Right. And so, yeah, it's just I think about you, you have to think about it on like a personal level. Right. And what you see on a day to day basis, um, because all of these issues are connected. Cool. And I want to give um, Hoda and Brian a chance um, if they want to add anything to that. Um, cool. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I just wanted to say also, um, Destiny, as you were talking, I was thinking like, what are some of the wins that we've had here? Because the struggle is is uphill for sure. And it's like, what what are some of the wins that we've had? So it's also I do I do love your framing of saying like, we're looking at the militarization of the police and connecting that to literal weapon sales and militarism abroad. And it's like, you know, shout out to the Anti-Gilly Coalition who are targeting the cooperation and collaboration between local police departments and highway patrol um, and uh, militaries, right? Like the Israeli military. Um, or shout out to the Stop Urban Shield Coalition out of the Bay Area, right? We, as one of the members of it, we pushed you know, war games um, out of the Bay and said, no, you can't hold these in Alameda County. You can't bring the Bahraini military and the Guatemalan military and the Indonesian military and the Israeli military to train over 100 departments on anti-terrorism or counter-terrorism. Um, 
methods, which don't even keep our communities safe. All they do is prepare for when there is a terrorist attack. Well, who's being criminalized by those terms of terrorism, domestic terrorism, et cetera, right? Um, I know others will talk about that, but um, what you just said, Destiny, inspired me to think about that. Like, what are some of the wins and the models that we have? And I think we have been really potent and powerful in being able to push back on at least some of these training mechanisms. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I think it's a super important connection to make between, um, you know, our wars at home and our wars abroad, um, because our wars, their wars abroad and their wars at home, and because they're not, um, like, disconnected. Um, so that's so super important. Um, I want to uh, draw attention um, to kind of what's been going on in the news um, lately um, and kind of how my entire life, and I'm sure a lot of people who are watching, um, their entire lives have been, um, the United States has been at war. And the United States has been, um, you know, uh, occupying um, spaces in foreign countries. And um, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and the 20th anniversary of the inauguration um, of this quote unquote war on terror. Um, and so how do we kind of describe the current state of the United States empire um, and militarization? And like, how do we conceptualize what is actually going on um, and what is the, what are the actual motives behind, um, you know, United, the United States occupying um, these countries um, so violently. Um, so I want to um, pose that question to Hoda and then um, if anyone else would like to add, um, that would be great. Hello, um, those are massive questions. <laughs> um, but first, I just want to start really quickly and saying thank you so much for dissenters for organizing this and Haymarket. Um, both of them, I know, like throw down whenever you need something, you just shoot an email and they're like, just tell me where, when, why, and I'm there, you know? So um, sending so much love and I really appreciate you having me here and learning from everybody on this panel. I've already just been like, wow. Um, and also as like a side note, I had the very bad decision of installing a bird feeder. <laughs> just like five minutes before this. And so there's birds chirping everywhere. And I can't tell if they're just angry because of and like offended by my food choice for them or they're excited. So if it gets loud, just let me know. <laughs> I won't go back inside. Um, but yeah, and I think this question is also just super like um, interesting to think about given it, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and um, what just happened in Afghanistan um, like these past few weeks and I think for many of us as you mentioned you know have our whole lives have been um, experiencing war um, so many of us have been you know born and raised after 9-11 and I think I, I think it's easy to talk about like the theoretical and like what does this look like but also I think we can just look to what happened these past two weeks to give us a very clear example of what the war on terror looks like in real time, um, what like the state of the United States militarism looks like in real time, um, what the implications of 9-11 and this like all, all of the sorts of the, the industries that were kind of booming after that, what that looked like in real time. Like we experienced that like just last week and two weeks ago. Um, and I think that it's like a, a, a very, very clear indication of like what this all means on a very tangible level. The fact that the United States invaded Afghanistan 20 years ago um, to rid the Afghan people of the Taliban who the United States in part armed, funded and like trained to like fight against communists and Soviet Russia. And then like now 20 years later and trillions of dollars spent and like tens of thousands of Afghans killed and America is leaving with the Taliban back in control. 
Um, and I think a lot of people like have been like putting out all these op-eds saying, okay, like, you know, what a waste, you know, like no one won, but there are people that won. Um, and those are the people, if we look at actually who wins from wars, we can understand what the war on terror looks like. We can see the companies whose um, have actually been profiting off of the invasion of Afghanistan and every step along the way, like people like Eric Prince, um, people don't know that name. There's a reason why you don't really know that name, or maybe you've heard it once or twice. He's the guy who runs this organization called Blackwater. I highly recommend you look it up. It's like a private army, and somehow that's legal. Like you can just like hire a bunch of people from one part of the world and like pay them to go fight somewhere else. Um, he also, again, was profiting off of the evacuations, like charging thousands of dollars to evacuate a few people from Afghanistan in a war and crisis that he also profited from. So I think we have to, we have to recognize that there are wins, um, but they're hidden. And I think if we can kind of think about who those wins are and, and who's actually benefiting from these wars and benefiting from this occupation, that also helps us think about how to direct our movements, how to think about strategy, who our targets actually are. Um, and then moving past from Afghanistan, just a few months before that, what happened this summer? Like, Israel reigns terror on Palestinians and in Gaza, just across like all of the occupied lands. Um, and again, like so many people like took to social media or like, I, I think there, there was a big win there, if I can say so, about like people actually really being radicalized. I think um, pushing people to actually have to deal with the fact that Palestinians are dying and that we are all kind of complicit in that. Um, and those are related. So I, I think thinking about like, what does the war on terror look like? Like what does post 9-11 look like? It looks all encompassing and it looks very, very entrenched within a larger culture of militarism, a larger culture of um, sort of counter-terrorism policies that are all coded words and a culture of, of investment and like weapons and things that kill people and harm people and create profit um, and a disinvestment therefore from our communities, life-giving institutions. Um, and even if you don't live in Palestine or don't live in Afghanistan, you live here and you've never even heard, you know, like this is the first time you're hearing about it. You still have been impacted so deeply by um, the war on terror and the amount of money that's been sold into it because we've all been affected by COVID. And there's a reason why the United States is more prepared to drop 10 million tons of weapons or bombs in one country, but not provide 10,000 like PPE or medical supplies to people living right here in its own borders. Um, and that's not an accident, right? Like these are all like very, very embedded within the ways in which the United States operates, um, in which the people who are behind the scenes get powerful and grow. Um, and why we don't hear names like Eric Prince all the time. Um, so I think it's so, so incredible as, as um, Nadia and Destiny both mentioned, like how everything is interconnected. Let's actually take that apart. Like what does it actually look like for all of our individual lives? Um, and how does that actually affect us in a deeper culture um, of militarism that we all kind of exist in? And that's why I do think that an organization like Dissenters is so important to be able to actually start shifting that culture. You know, it's not just like one campaign here, one campaign there. Like, how can we rebuild um, a movement that at its core understands um, that we're living on an active empire and stolen lands? And that alone, you know, renders all of us complicit, whether or not you pay taxes, not going to ask questions. Um, but all of us are complicit by being here who are not indigenous um, and are, you know, not black. Uh, so I think all of us have to also like have, like understand the ways in which we too have to do so much in order to um, change the culture within our own communities and 
the communities that we live in. Um, and, and to kind of attempt to answer like, how do we, like, where do we go from here? Where are we? I think something that when, especially like, I, I know this center is like college focused. When I started college, I hated history <laughs> um, and for good reason, right? Like I also went to Chicago. I know Nico also probably has their own complaints, um, but I hated history because it was just like dead white men telling me about my people and my culture, which I know are clearly not true, right? And so I hated going to history class. I thought it was stupid. I thought it was silly. And it was just, you know, the stories of people who won. Um, but I think something that is so incredibly important for all of us as we try to just deepen our understandings of where we are in this moment is to understand history, understand where we came from, um, because that allows us to take these step backs and take these steps back and see those exact connections that Destiny and Nadia have mentioned. Like we can very clearly understand how deeply rooted um, like liberation is between like non-black Muslims and black Muslims and black people who aren't Muslim in the United States by looking at, you know, the history of 9-11, looking at the history of counterterrorism in this culture, seeing that, like, this idea of radicalization and the surveillance state that has really, like, blossomed after 9-11 is rooted in a history um, of, of carcerality of Black people in this country, um, a history of slavery in this country, the first bio like um, biotechnology that sort of does face surveillance, facial recognition technology, and things like that, they originate in slave posters, like runaway slave posters. Um, and Simone Brown writes about this so much about how much of the world that we live in right now is rooted in the very like foundation of this country. Um, and so we're able to, through understanding of history, actually parse out what that connection means and, and what that means for me saying, you know, like, just like Destiny mentioned, I'm never going to be free until Destiny is free. Like, never. Because if if we don't actually eradicate those deeper systems that are, like, keep regrowing its heads um, and we don't chop it off at its core, it's just going to keep growing new heads and it's keep going to go after other people. Um, and so forget your history textbooks, but talk to your elders, um, talk to people in your community who have survived and lived, um, lived through this, like more, you'll learn more like talking to your great grandmother or your grandfather than you'll ever learn in a classroom. Um, so talk to people and like, make sure that our movement is both, yes, nourished and like healthy, but also like intergenerational. And I think that's so important as we think about, um, where we come from so we can understand where we go next. Yeah, um, I think in just talking about Afghanistan, particularly because it's in the news, um, it's just wild. The first protest that I ever attended was against the war in Afghanistan uh, before it started. And so it's so wild that 20 years on, basically, this is the result. And that some like punk ass college kid like me was saying this is the way that's going to happen. And like, that's the way that it happened. I think just it shows the ineptitude of the, the US ruling class. Um, and I think on the question of the the war on terror, I think one thing that's important to note is that like it's going to keep going. And I think that's one of the really positive benefits of organizations like dissenters that see um, organizing against war as being organizing against this forever war situation that is not, you know, the old idea of war of you take all your guys and you put them in a boat, and you send them there, but a permanent occupation, permanent surveillance, and permanent violence that the U.S. doles out all across the world. And it's different. You know, the U.S. has 800 bases in 70 countries. Um, the U.S. Special Operations, so the Special Forces and, and, and whatnot, um, the size of that department is as big as Canada's standing military. Um, you know, there are bases and, and secret sort of whatever sort of training soldiers all across the place. Um, we talk about the war on terror. I think a large of its concentration is in the Middle East. 
Um, I think 85% of all special operations in the greater Middle East, Central Asia uh, region. But people don't talk about Africa. Like there's a war on terror that's going on in Africa that's quite profound. Um, the dictator of Chad, Idris Denby, ruled for 30 years and was propped up by the U.S. tens of millions of dollars uh, training the troops in the pretense of being able to combat uh, Boko Haram in the neighboring country. Um, and so I think there's, there's a war going on in Africa as well under the pretense of fighting terror that is part of this ongoing um, forever war of special operations and assassinations and uh, weapons trade and uh, training local despots that I think it's really important to campaign around. And I think that's one thing that Decentris is doing that's really exciting to see, because that's the kind of new movement against war and imperialism that is required to um, really combat a forever permanent war that is going on every day all around the world perpetrated by the United States. That's it. Yeah, I don't want to give um, Nadia and Destiny a chance to say something on that point, if you want to. Maybe just that um, I think uh, being growing up uh, post 9 11 and then also uh, being Palestinian, Arab, Muslim adjacent person, um, you know. Something that something that I learned um, in college was the way, and 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 actually as a young adult was just the way that um, the countering violent extremism laws and, and infrastructure, or or on, on the California state level, the PVE, um, and the surveillance of uh, masajid or uh, mosques, you know, the surveillance of our institutions and communities, um, how connected that was to the war on terror that, you know, Brian, you were talking about protesting. That was actually the first protest I ever went to, too. Um, and so um, it's just really uh, interesting, scary, um, important to connect, uh, again, the war on terror framework back to militarism um, because it does impact all of us. And I think in terms of impacting um, black, brown, indigenous people, also um, urban people, you know, people who are living in, in a city context, um, it's also myself, um, we can see the way that it, that it functions um, to, to criminalize us all under, under um, just and in collaboration again with policing system. But then on top of that, as progressives, we can see the way that the war on terror and domestic terrorism frameworks um, hope to criminalize and, and strive uh, to criminalize us. You know, as people who are progressives and who have um, some words and some actions uh, for the state that we're living in. So I think I think I have pulled a lot of that information and those experiences um, or the frameworks to, to talk about those experiences from the Palestinian youth movement. It's been really, really helpful in politicizing and bringing to, to question, like, why am I experiencing these things in my life? Why um, are so many of our youth, um, you know, why are we constantly under the threat of entrapment, right? Why are there these different cases? And so it's like, well, if we're talking about the war on terror framework, which has totally shadowed and, and framed our lives, I mean, that's what that is. It's the, it's, it's the framework that keeps coming back and keeps coming back and keeps coming back. Because if you're the state, you're not going to give up power. You'll just reinvent yourself, reinvent yourself, reinvent yourself bolster it, grow it. And so, yeah, we can say, okay, there's withdrawal from Afghanistan, but the war on terror lives on. 
And the war on terror and the replications of that doesn't just live on for us, it lives on for the people of Afghanistan, who now are in another cycle of the US-produced war on terror, right? Before the word, after the word, when the phrase has changed. So um, yeah, I, I just wanted to comment on the genealogies and so that we keep in mind kind of where is this stuff coming from? How does it live now? Where is it going? Thank you for that. Yeah, um, another thing um, that's kind of been at the forefront of like our minds, obviously, um, as Americans in the belly of the beast is the kind of movement for black lives in the United States. Um, and last year, like just over a year um, anniversary of um, last summer's abolitionist kind of uprising rebellion um, against racist policing, um, racist police terror. Um, and so um, the rebellion kind of like um, radicalized, I guess, a lot of young people um, to the idea of a world without prisons, a world without police. Um, and I guess my question, um, uh, specifically for Destiny, um, is how are young people making the connection between imagining a world without police, imagining a world without prisons, um, to imagining a world without war, imagining a world without um, the military, do you know what I mean? Um, and how um, does our movement kind of um, help uh, bring in more people and making those connections and making um, kind of that connection between, um, like we were talking about earlier, the wars at home and the wars abroad? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, as a young person, like who was organizing in the city of Chicago, like a lot of the times when like, you know, leading campaigns to being out in the streets to all of the different tactics used to organize and mobilize. A lot of the times I got like, oh, y'all are just some rowdy young people and some rowdy teens and just want to be rural, rah, rah. y'all don't really know anything that's going on in y'all community. Y'all aren't really connected to the community. Y'all just want to make a ruckus. And obviously we got that from like politicians and other people who just aren't inclined to inclined to listen to youth. But I think like, like I said earlier, the connections are there. Like a lot of the times when young people present themselves as abolitionists and not even just young people, just whenever an individual uh, gives themselves the title uh, as an abolitionist, a lot of times they receive pushback. And for some reason, when the word abolitionist uh, is about, about immediately people's minds go to police and prison, right? That's immediately where their minds go. They hear abolition, they're like, oh, you don't want no police, you don't want no prisons, like why, right? Or they ask, oh, well, what are you gonna do to replace the police? Or how do we continue to keep our community safe? And it's like, well, we've been giving you guys the answers if you listen, but also it's just like, what I try to think about it as it's just like, Abolition is not no prisons, no police, that's it. Abolition is about attacking these institutions at the core, right? Abolition is about tearing down racism, is about tearing down capitalism, is about tearing down imperialism, is about tearing down all of these systems uh, that operate under capitalism that allow the prison industrial complex to exist, that allow the military industrial complex to exist, that allow the school to prison pipeline to exist, right? And so abolition, what I like to tell people is that abolition is much, as much as about building shit up, 
as it is about tearing shit down, if not more, right? Because a lot of people, they hear abolition and they're like, okay, you're going to get rid of the police and that's it. Like, no, if you guys listen, we're getting rid of these systems and implementing this because we we don't need external forces, external stimuli, external institutions and systems to have successful communities, right? To give ourselves what we need to be sustainable, right? Um, and so, yes, abolition is about ridding the, the getting rid of police and prisons and the military industrial complex, but it's also about getting rid of the military. It's also about tearing down capitalism as a whole, right? Um, like I said earlier, the military operate in the same way that police operate. Police come into external communities and occupy. Military goes into external communities and occupy, right? And so it doesn't make sense to only get rid of one of them, right? When they're working hand in hand and they're both working to uphold capitalism, they're both working to uphold imperialism, they're both working to ensure that poor people stay poor, that rich people, right? So at the end of the day, abolition is not just about tearing down systems. It's about building up our communities. It's about taking back the resources that belong to us. And it's about growth. It's about abundance. It's about it's about prosperity. And we cannot achieve any of those things with the presence of a military industrial complex or a prison industrial complex. So yeah, abolition, everybody's always like, oh, what are you going to do to replace? Or you're just going to tear everything down. You just want anarchy. What's next? And it's like, no, we're implementing systems that work for us, right? We're actually listening to our own community. We're actually in touch with our community. We are, we're, we're not operating like as an external force in the same way that police and military come into places they don't know, you know, and 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 and, and exploit, right? And, 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 and take resources from and try to implement law and order, right? We don't need any of that. And that's what abolition is about. Abolition is about making sure we have everything we need in our communities, taking back the resources that belong to us. It means working at a communal level, right? Building relationships, all things that these systems don't do or combat, right? And so for me, going from saying, you know, fuck the police and fuck prisons is the same thing as saying, you know, in war, <laughs> because they're all under this umbrella of abolition and what it looks like to imagine what we want our world to look like. And for me, that's a world without prisons and police just as much as it is a world without war. Cool. Um, so I guess my next question, um, Hoda kind of uh, touched on this earlier. Um, but, um, you know, our fight against militarism and our fight against um, policing and racist police terror um, and all of that is very much um, both a ideolo ideological fight um, as it is um, kind of like a fight against policy, if that makes sense. Um, and it's kind of a, um, and so the question is what kind of ideas and like um, kind of institutional um, indoctrination um, are we fighting against? Like what ideals, um, what systems are we fighting against? Um, and what does that mean for our organizing? And how do we fight against um, kind of frameworks of idea or frameworks of thinking like racial capitalism um, and things that drive, um, you know, war um, at home and abroad? Um, and that question is for anyone who would like to take it. So, okay. 
I can take a stab while everybody else gathers it. I'm taking one for the team. So <laughs> y'all get to gather your thoughts. <laughs> Just gonna set out whatever comes to mind. Um, yeah, I think this is a, a very, very good question. And I oftentimes also um, recognize that when we also start talking about wars and like systems and all these like, every, you know, everything's connected. Everyone like just gets overwhelmed and shuts down and they're like, oh shit, you know, everything's connected. Um, and so it feels really like scary and overwhelming. Um, and so I think when we're, we're thinking about like, how do we move forward? Um, a lot of the, it is really like, I think recognizing that everything is connected actually is like a good thing and is a place where you can draw a lot of hope and um, like base movements in because I think it allows us to actually deepen relationships of solidarity and recognize that no one like niche organization is can, should, or try to do it all, but we all are part of a larger ecosystem that is kind of fighting for the same things and we need people to be playing different roles. So not everybody's role is like being out in the streets. Not everyone's able to go out in the streets all the time. And I think if we can also like recognize the ways in which all of us have a role and it looks different and we can like value that and appreciate that um, and just take our time to figure that out. I think that's a really, really important first step is to, to, to recognize the ecosystem that we're like all a part of um, both locally, nationally and globally. You know, like it's America, people who are living here are not the only people responsible for everything happening abroad. Um, you know, where's also the limits between the agency of people who are also living under occupation and making sure that, you know, they also have a role and it's not our job to like tell people what their role is abroad. So I think being able to know that both is like a way how to step in and, and where to step back. Um, and so I think it, it actually is kind of a, a great thing, if I can, <laughs> that things are connected because that allows us to to identify who we're working alongside and how we target things and how we can move forward. So for example, like Nadia mentioned the big five, there are a lot of people who hate military contractors, right? It's not just Palestinians, it's not just Afghans, you know, it's not just people in Kashmir, like we all hate them. <laughs> we all are deeply invested um, in the dismantling of war profiteering and people who benefit from and are like funding and arming genocide. Um, and so I think if we're able to actually work on de-siloing our movements and less from a place of I'm against this than I am for the creation of this, and that's a little bit about what Destiny was talking about, like what are we actually trying to build? Like what does the long-term like struggle look like um, in order to help us think about what comes now, both in terms of the organizing strategy, but also like on an individual level. Um, because at the end of the day, I think something that uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore actually always says, like, to achieve abolition, we have to change only one thing, and that's everything. You know, it's not like magic, and I might be butchering some of this, but you get the gist. <laughs> it's not like a magic wand, it's like the practice of doing it. Um, and so I think that that happens in our organizing spaces, and that happens on our personal individual level, um, because we actually literally cannot get rid of police and we cannot get rid of the military if we haven't already built those relationships of care amongst ourselves first you know and I, I think that's something that is a big challenge and a lot of you know abolitionists may not have those conversations as much as we it's easy to like fight and say like this is awful and we should and we should be on the streets and we should be you know organizing 
Um, and also, I think being able to be reflective about what does this mean for me in this moment today and tomorrow and the way that I treat my neighbor, the way that I treat like people in my community. Um, how can I create ecosystems of care that can also nourish ourselves for a long term multi-generational struggle? Um, I think is a few thoughts I'll like leave <laughs> on the plate for how to address them move forward. I could add something to that. Uh, that's cool. Um, yeah, thanks, Hoda, for taking one for the team. Um, it inspired me in thinking about um, something Destiny was saying about um, that we need to strike at the institutions at the core. And so I think that for me, it's, um, and if you listen to Destiny's poem, I'm going to talk about socialism, so it's time to get the splits out. Um, and so I think, you know, as far as ideology and how it's all sort of connected, there's a conception of what drives war. Um, that says that the military industrial complex is the reason why we're at war, that, um, you know, that it is for to make a profit that the, the big corporations um, somehow force or uh, coerce through lobbying the U.S. state into, into going to war. And I think that, you know, there's a logic to that in the sense where capitalism is always going to make a buck off of other people's suffering, and they're going to sort of make as much money as they can. It's massive. You know, 40% of the world's um, arms exports come from the U.S. Um, however, I think it's like what drives the motivation for it? And I think that the a notion of um, imperialism is important in this regard. And then imperialism isn't just a synonym for like U.S. militarism abroad, but for a system that is competition between capitalist classes of different countries. And that competition is what drives um, military conflict. And not just military conflict, but other forms of imperialism. Um, sanctions, you know, all the sort of coercion and bullying that goes on behind the scenes that comes before the sort of most violent of these. Uh, like sanctions is pretty violent. Sanctions kill a lot of people too, um, and, and to that. And I think that understanding that it is not the fact that the U.S. state is some neutral entity that is coerced or convinced or bribed into waging war by the arms dealers, but that the U.S. state and the arms dealers are basically the same ruling class. And that ruling class has an interest in securing their hegemony, their markets, their natural resources abroad, and that's what causes imperialism. I think that that sort of um, shift in logic is important because it's how we connect these campaigns that we're engaged in against war profiteers with the fact that we do want to strike at the core of it, and striking the core of it is what motivates it. And what motivates it is capitalist hegemony, and that means we got to sort of get to that point. So I think when we talk about, um, you know, the new systems to replace it, as Destiny talks about, and what abolition means in making things, I think that that connecting imperialism into something that has to be anti-capitalist and begin to talking about replacing it with different sorts of systems, kind of like socialism, where we can democratically control our wealth and do so in a way where we can decide to, you know, have all the health care and food and all the, the stuff we need and not going to, uh, you know, piles of blood and misfortune for people around the world, particularly those in the global south. One real brief. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm sitting here like writing notes because I'm, I'm learning and building a different idea. Um, I think something... Um, Ideologically, I think we also need to 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 take on white supremacy and settler colonization. Like something that I saw in the YouTube comments, um, but also something that Crystal Tubles, who I organized um, with, 
um, mentioned is that the longest standing war is not the war on terror, it's the war against Native peoples. And so, um, you know, one one book that did change my life was Winona LaDuke's um, The Militarization of Indian Country. And she talks about how the, the first frontier of U.S. war is the frontier against Native people by the U.S. Army and, and U.S. forces. And so I think um, something that's, that's important is that when we talk about uh, like these ongoing violences against indigenous people, against black people, against migrant people, right, against poor people, against working people, right, against femme, against femme and trans and all, right, all of us who are put into the subsidiaries and are being oppressed, it's made on top of building blocks. We know that conceptually. What does it mean in order to say, okay, so if that's at the root, pragmatically, one of the things that we have to really get to is the deconstruction of the empire from the inside, right? That's part of why I think land back is so important. That's part of why I think people, land returning to people and people returning to land and reparations is so important, right? Um, because it also gives us a hold materially in order to be able to strike at the heart of empire. I think um, I bring up the ideology because when I look at like when I look at like extractive industries, when I look at weapons making, when I look at surveillance or drones, right? Huda, you said like let's pick it apart, right? Where are these connections? Like we should we should continue to do that because when you parse them, you realize they're not that they're not that uh, they're 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 next to each other. They're connected to each other. They're part of upholding um, class interests, as you said, Brian. Or they're part of upholding their profit and their their bottom line, right? But they're also part of they they are interested in suppressing our movements and suppressing and depressing our people, right? And so um, that's something else where I'm like, okay, where are our footholds and what are the places where we say, okay, ideologically we are unpacking and, and committed to undoing empire, what are the ways in which we can literally do that? Um, and so that's that's something I just wanted to bring bring up. Can I, sorry, I know we're out of time, but I just wanna under like draw like five fat ass lines under something that Brian said, if that's okay. And that's that sanctions are war because we don't talk about that enough. And sanctions are literally one of the most violent choking forms of warfare, um, what's happening to Iran right now, obviously. Um, and now because the Taliban are ruling Afghanistan, Afghanistan for all intents and purposes is also now sanctioned by the United States as well too, after just leaving it as a, you know, so I, I want us to also just like recognize that as like war develops and morphs and is a culture and is all encompassing, it also changes and looks different. And now it looks like drone strikes and it looks like sanctions and it feels less tangible, but it's still there. And just as, if not more impactful. Thank you for that. Um, so I'm gonna ask one last question. Um, I want to um, remind everyone that we will have a Q and A after this last question. Um, so if you wanna drop your questions in the chat um, so that we can um, get as many of them as possible answered. Um, that would be great. Um, but my last question um, is kind of a big one. So get ready, panel. <laughs> get ready. Um, 
what will it take to defund war? And what type of movement <laughs> will we have to build um, to <laughs> take our funds um, and our energy um, out of war and occupation and sanctions and all of this and the rest? What will it take <laughs> for us to do that? I know it's a hard question. I'm gonna give you guys time to think and anyone who like has a thought first. Next time I dare you to just sit and think about answering these questions before you just pull these out as like a last one minute, last thought. <laughs> How do you do it? <laughs> I, I can start. This is a very hard question. So uh, my answer might not be all that, but um, I would say you start by talking to people and just getting to know people, building relationships in your community, because in the same way that, uh, like Ahura said, like, you know, everybody hates, you know, military profiteers and war profiteers or whatever. Um, a lot of people are impacted by, you know, the military industrial complex and the uh, prison industrial complex. And they, they, they see the effects of it but they don't have the terminology to put it, to make those connections, right? So, so like, for example, a lot of people like who come from black and brown, you know, divested communities in the city of Chicago, they see that there's no resources, that there's a lack of access to housing, right? That the schools are being closed, right? That there's no access to healthy food, but they aren't necessarily sometimes able to put the terminology behind this is why it is. And I think that people want to have access to housing, right? People want to have access to food, right? People are fired up about fired up about this shit. So they will get together, right? Like for me as someone who's organizing on my campus, um, uh, running a divest from deaf campaign against military, um, against same people who heavily border security, you can do that no matter where you are. You can look look up people see who they are, find out who's responsible for your issue, and just continue to build community, get into contact with people, see how they're affected, you know, tap into your community allergies and a certain amount of privilege to be able to have access to that. Um, and so, yeah, that's... Wow. So for me... Wow. So for me, when do I find it useful as an organizer? So for me, an example is F-16s um, and precision missiles to the state of Israel. Um, if that is blocked, that is going to make a material difference to Palestinian people. Okay, that is when I work ignition. That's that's the type of work that I want to do. I think. Um, if we can create, and it's it's largely unpopular, right? Because engaging in policy is not always radical. And sometimes you're just building yourself a different uh, container to put yourself in, right? That's the danger of reform. You say, ooh, this system or this thing looks ugly, right? And then you try to get a handle to pull it down. If you have reform, you drop the handles. Everything's smooth, it looks pretty, it talks nice, right? So yes, be wary, but people who are doing grassroots organizing, coordinated campaigns, Destiny, you talked about the divest from death on university level, right? Literally taking and divesting money, also deplatforming these different companies as progressive uh, organization of progressive wing, right? Uh, taking on um, municipal, uh, uh, taking on municipal ties and municipal um, contracts 
Um, you know, there are so many ways that we can go after these different corporations. We have to do that. And I do think that there is a role um, also in connecting the way if we can't have an in uh, that makes a material difference in policy, I think we need to highlight how these things like, you know, we frankly, if we want to talk about the terrorism list, right? And the way that the IMF, the World Bank, has completely uh, shuttered uh, Sudan's ability to live and provide for its people. That's another topic we can talk about. But in terms of the UAE, I mean, they greenlighted violence, Israeli colonial violence against Palestinian people at a time that the Israelis are occupying Jerusalem, are claiming it. They got $23.7 billion, billion with a B, in weapons, right? They got $10 billion stockpiled munitions. Where is that going? That's going to be, those are the barters that they get for selling Palestine down the river. It's not just about continue to purport U.S. interests. So I think, what does what does it look like? Level being able to make sure that we're not working against each other's interests and we're not also engaging in stuff. Work Say is an and to what Nadia said. I think that like reforms are an important thing and that there have developments for, for all people involved. We look at uh, what happened last time we saw tried to disband the then policing in a way. I think a certain degree of also kicking up a ruckus and that you know we need to be able to build have those relationships built like Destiny was saying. Like when we go, we only know should we have people with us. And that means talking ahead of time and making sure people have our back so that when we move, sort of folks move with us. But then it's gonna take, I think, talking about and that slow patient work of building for reforms like Nadia was saying, but also understanding what we're going against. You know, the the chief uh, purveyor of violence in the world. We're not gonna just reform away. And it's gonna take a ruckus. Like, look around us, <laughs> like quite literally, look at a map. Um, and I think take inspiration, especially from the African continent and the Middle East most recently and South, um, yeah, South America as well, too. Um, Southeast Asia, basically everywhere else in the world except the United States and Europe. Revolutions grow and like thinning already. Use terms like permanent war. Like it, it won't be if we don't let it be. And it's as already stopping and, and changing and transforming all around us. Um, and that like... It, I've had a conversation with one of my very good friends, Leila Abdel-Razak, who some people might recognize, Palestinian graphic novelist. Um, highly, highly recommend checking out her book. But we um, we went into the woods and read Marx for my birthday. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a bit of a nerd. And um, and one of the conversations that we had that I've been thinking about and like mulling over for a long time is that you know so so many of us, so much of our movements is all about planting the seeds for a future that we recognize we'll never see in our lifetimes, right? And it's very defeatist when we're like, okay, like, sure, we're fighting towards war, but we know we're never going to see the end of the war in our lifetimes. Like, we're going to be realistic. I mean, inshallah, God willing, we will see the end of this empire one day, inshallah. But if we're going to be realistic, maybe not. So what does that mean, though, is that that doesn't mean that we don't get to experience liberation, or at least make that happen for ourselves today and tomorrow in the little moments that we can find. Like liberation can look like one hour. It can look like three hours. It can look like 24 hours of a community of care that you've created for yourself. It can be an afternoon you take off and not look at deadlines. Like I think if we can also think about liberation as, as moments and pockets of times rather than like this ultimate goal in a linear fashion that we get there and we're done and then we're like liberated period. Um, I think that also allows us to have the strength to keep going and also be able to to plant those seeds, but also 
like be nourished by that fruit along the way and in the meantime as well too. Um, yeah, excited to get to these questions. Yes, and there are some very interesting ones. Um, so um, first, um, these two questions are kind of related um, and I wanna just jump into it because I wanna have as much time to answer. Um, but someone said, I've heard that statehood and warfare are inextricably connected. Um, the war made the state and the state made the war is the quote. Um, and so does anti-war protesting ultimately call for a new kind of state or in society? Um, and the second question kind of on the line of connections with the state and organizing with the state is what place does voting have, if any, in mo uh, movements for revolution revolutionary change? Yes, I'm very excited about this first question. So how many of us can jump in? Um, 100% death to all empires, death to all nation states. <laughs> all of them, I don't even care, every single one. Um, to, to claim a state within a, a, a forced and created fabricated national identity is always and inherently violent, always. Like there is not a single exception to that rule. It is the rule. <laughs> um, and I, I think that's, uh, and I don't want to like answer another question that I saw that I'm excited about, but I think that's what I'm also, like I, I think this idea of, of really sitting down and taking the time to imagine what we want and building that world, that means that we're building that based on visions and not like arbitrary white supremacist categories of identity that have been sort of like chipped away and like hyper, hyper categorized and marked. Um, the world, like if every single like ethnic group in the world has their own state, like that, that's not the world I want to live in, you know? Like I, I want to be able to live with so many different types of people um, collaboratively, collectively. And so I think when we think about um, the end of war, we do have to be thinking about the end of the nation state <laughs> uh, and borders. And these are 100% links. So I really, really, really love this question. Um, and even like in, in nationalist struggles that we sort of celebrate, like I, I don't wanna, I'm, sure Nadia might be able to speak to this too, but like the Palestinian struggle, for example, there are so many Palestinian futurists like Leila who I mentioned, who are thinking about a Palestine beyond just the flag, beyond the identity of Palestine. Um, and so I think that even in, in like struggles that were like, oh, but they deserve it, you know, there are still ideas that are happening that are beyond bordered recognitions of people and beyond like fabricated identity. Like it's all fake, you know, and it doesn't make sense to me. Um, and like that, you know, it, it should challenge our notion of who we call my people or our people also. Um, and that's something that I learned kind of like in a roundabout way um, where like I was going on this world tour speaking and as an Iranian, you know, I expected Iranians to come through. The people who would always heckle me would be Iranian. Like every single time people who gave me the dirty looks in the airport, always Iranian. You know, we have you know, our, our community is very complicated. Um, but then the people who would come up after the talk consistently and be like, wow, thank you so much. I've been following your work, et cetera, have just been like abolitionists, have been organizers, have been like black and brown people who have great, unbiasedly, great politics. Um, and like, I was realizing like, that's what community is. Like, why am I forced to say that I have more in common with someone who is born in the geographical area as my parents, as I do with people who want to build the same world that I do. Um, and so I think, inherently an abolitionist movement, if we're building the same way that Destiny and Brian and Nadia and I have been talking about, the way of the sort of envisioning the future and then acting on it, it inherently already is gonna be a stateless um, organizing effort because 
we are organizing from a place of collective values and not national identity. Um, plus one to what Hada said around the nation state being a form of violence. I do think that for me as a Palestinian um, and being, you know, it uh, impacted in my life by revolutionary nationalism, I think the piece that's really important for me is around the nation. So what is the container? What is the place? What is the position where a nation of people um, can be self-determined and can can have self-determination. We know that borders are inherently violent. We know that the enforcement of those borders are violent. However, we also, you know, in the case of um, the Palestinian people, at least my take, is we're up against uh, a nation state of, of Israel and we're up against, um, you know, the, the, the state of Israel being a proxy for uh, Western interests in the region. That's always uh, one of the reasons why the state is going to be so valuable, right? It's not just about us. Uh, we are maybe the semicolon. Um, we've made ourselves more than that because we resist and we fight back, right? But I think we have international solidarity, right? And so I think um, that is a really important question, you know, strategically, what do we do in a world that is violence, predicated on violence, and we're forced to operate within the blocks of nation states. I think this also comes into a conversation around uh, feminist praxis, right? Um, what does it mean to uh, develop a world that's about nation, it's about peoplehood, right? Um, it's about uh, power, it's about empowerment of our people, right, of all of our people. Um, so I would love to talk about this later. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot, it's a lot to impact for me. I think I strive for Palestinian statehood um, because that is the closest building block that will achieve um, uh, some some place to stand, some place to be, some place to live uh, for my people. Um, we also know that in the case of you know 2012, with the United Nations and the official uh, acceptance of of Palestine, the state of Palestine as a non-observer state just like the Vatican whatever I mean that was used and it's used to legitimize the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian Authority is not a government that represents the people right and they to me are a bureaucratic managerial arm of the Israeli occupation and Israeli colonial violence so what do we have to do about that now we have the statehood bid that we were all very I mean not all many of us were very excited about and what does that mean materially it means that uh, the Palestinian Authority can oppress Palestinian people and say we are also the only legitimate representation of the Palestinian people on the international level. So here it is, replicated back onto us. Uh, a lot to unpack. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I want to get into one more question um, to see if we can answer this one. Um, but um, who are some movements and groups and organizers fighting militarism um, from outside the U.S. and from inside the U.S. Um, that you um, learn from and that um, you kind of draw um, inspiration from? Um, so I want to hear um, if you guys have any movements um, that you guys are inspired by. Um, could I hop on briefly for the last question? And then I'll love other people to talk up this one I think are more well positioned to take up. Um, yeah, I think um, underlining five underlines to the death to empire, death to nation state um, 
And I think that the other question that we didn't take up was about voting. And so I want to sort of talk about that a little bit, too. And, you know, we can't really address that, I think, as said in the Middle East, and particularly as it pertains to Palestine, that he's not going to move the embassy and that he wants to continue the normalization process that continually isolates the, the Palestinian people. He wants to return uh, the U.S. to the, the leadership of the world table. And we know that U.S. being at the leadership of anything is going to be bad for most people in the world. Um, and so I think that sort of when talking about voting, it's not just voting as, as, as if you go into a booth and pull a switch or not, but I think it's like the fact that we have a two-party system. I think there's an assumption that we live in a democracy. I think we don't. I think it's even becoming less so as they pass more and more laws to make sure that black and brown folks uh, can't vote. I think it's, it's, it, it's, we don't live in a democracy, and both parties are capitalist war-making parties. And so I think that unless there's something that we can vote for that is, is independent, that actually is a party that you have a say in, like, I don't have a say in the Democratic Party, um, then then voting is, I think, is a, a pretty obsolete act. Um, and I think building movements uh, fr from below is a really important thing. And I think there's a lot of challenges to that. I think that, you know, there have been some people in Congress, like uh, the squad, who I think have been a good mouthpiece for a lot of politics, but it's also not perfect. Like Ilhan Omar, Jamal Bowman, and Ayanna Presley, um, they voted just a couple weeks ago for H.R. 4373, which is the thing that confirms the appropriation of $3.3 billion to the Israeli state. And Ilhan Omar is someone who has been very good as, as far as talking about questions of imperialism. So I think that like the question of voting, I think is like, you know, it's useful. I think it's not something that we should abstain from in principle. Um, it's a way to counter power. It's a way to sometimes get some of these reforms that, that Nadia mentions. But I think that our power is in the streets, our movements and our campaigns. And I think it's against the two parties of capital, which are the Democrats and the Republicans. Yeah, and I want to raise up that other question of um, who are some movements and groups and organizers um, outside the U.S. Um, that you admire and learn from? Can anyone can answer? If Nadia is about to talk or not, she looks so close to unmuting herself, so I'm like, go ahead, go ahead. Oh my gosh, I don't want to jump, I don't want to jump in first. Um, okay, um, what a beautiful question. So much to say. I think um, I am constantly inspired by um, Adamir and the political prisoner movement in Palestine. Um, I think um, if uh, we want to talk about people who are leaders from the inside and who are often forgotten, we need to talk about people who are imprisoned um, and, and are often the, the heads of our movements. Um, I think um, uh, some another organization that I'm really inspired by all the time is Talat, you know, bringing up the question of um, national liberation and uh, women's liberation and talking about why uh, colonialism is a gendered project um, and why uh, you cannot have, uh, there is no free nation without free people, no free Palestine without free women. Um, and also pushing back against this um, terrible uh, white feminism, right, first wave femme, uh, 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 I don't know, criminalization of us as women. Um, and as people who are experiencing patriarchy, as if that's because uh, our culture is backwards and uh, barbaric and all of this other stuff. Anyways, um, so yeah, uh, I really appreciate them a lot. Um, I'm really, um, I'm really inspired by um, organizing that I see from young people and youth organizations, student movements um, across the world. I think. Um, when I look um, to Mexico, for example, I see so much being led by young 
uh, young people and students, especially uh, against the state. But I also uh, see a lot of important work happening to empower communities locally. I really, really believe in local power. I think that's one of the most effective building blocks for us. As Destiny, you said, it's not about us coming into a community to build. We are from the community. What does that mean to work from the community and to build our power? So um, I want to like shout out a list of orgs, but um, I'm going to pass it off because I, I know we're out of time. But um, yeah, I, uh, it's a great question. Right. Any other short input um, from any of our panelists? Very short. I would just say I echo all of that. And I think a lot of the movements and orgs and people that I love, um, maybe not necessarily are like outwardly political, but are doing extremely important work within local communities and are usually not the ones who have like who are like famous. You know, it's not the ones that are well known, but it's the people who are doing it because they actually give a damn and are being like assassinated by damn companies, you know, or like hydro, like whatever. So I think th it's, it's really like the people who are doing the work and have their head down and are just um, like powering through that I, I think are so, so integral and we, we don't lift up enough um, because, you know, we just sometimes, a lot of us just wait until there's something that's sexy and then we start talking about it. So I think being able to, to see all of the movements happening around the world that are creative, that are um, like art-based, um, music-based, just so, so incredible and amazing and thinking about joy as resistance in many spaces too and just being able to like live as like a young person of color in some parts of the world is um, beautiful in and of itself. Um, obviously dissenters feel like that's one that we have to name. I think that was a cop-out question. <laughs> I think it was a setup. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I just want to thank you all for being so willing to answer um, these questions and, you know, work through these hard questions um, and share your knowledge with everyone on this call. Um, and I want to um, put out to everyone on this call um, to follow um, at We Are Decenters. Um, you know, we're going to be putting out a whole bunch of um, content and like educational content events, um, you know, all different types of things um, against militarism because we are building a youth movement um, against militarism in the United States um, and abroad because we um, want to live in a world without war. And we want to, to um, you know, to, uh, maybe we want to abolish these systems um, that have been um, oppressing us for so long and for most of our entire lives. Um, and so thank you all for coming. Um, thank everyone um, for um, connecting. Um, this orientation is not over. This is um, the first day. Um, so we have like much better, uh, not much better, but much, um, <laughs> I didn't mean that, I promise. <laughs> I mean, we have much more to come. We have much more great things to come. Deleted and blocked. <laughs> No, please redact that sentence. I mean, we have much more amazing people to speak to this uh, upcoming weekend. Oh, um, so please, <laughs> so just stay tuned um, on our Instagram um, and please register. Um, and thank you guys all for coming. That is um, the end of our panel. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.